Hello and welcome to OPG Inspire. I'm your host, Robert Roach, bringing you the latest in leading with abundance and finding the tools one needs to make a better world. Uh, If you've been enjoying the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes to show your support. It really helps us a lot. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing Pete Senna, co-founder, CEO, and chief creative officer at Digital Surgeons in New Haven, Connecticut. Following my interview with co-founder David Salinas in episode four, Pete brings a creative and analytical mind to the projects undertaken at Digital Surgeons. And his position as a thought leader is easily displayed throughout his articles and publications on the website. Self-described as a quiet internet explorer, Pete began his career as a coder without the experience of leading a team or representing the will of an entire company. Uh, Though we will speak briefly on his transformation to CEO of a major marketing consulting group, the bulk of the interview is focused on what Pete does really well, analyze behaviors and businesses, and bring creative thought to the age-old problems that companies face. This was an excellent interview, and we hope to get Pete on again soon to discuss more of his ideas in the future. Without further ado, my interview with Pete Senna. All right, so uh, we're live. Thank you so much for sitting down with me, Pete. How's it going? It's going really good, man. Thanks for having us. Um, a, last, uh, a lot of our listeners already have listened to my previous podcast episode with um, David Salinas, and uh, they got to hear a lot about uh, digital surgeons and about District um, that's popping up here in Connecticut, in New Haven. And uh, I was wondering if you'd give us a quick update. How are we doing in terms of District and, uh, and digital surgeons? Doing really good. David is certainly a tough act to follow. He's a, he's a dynamic, charismatic guy, so I'm, uh, I'm honored to, to be following in his footsteps. Um, to, to answer your question, everything's going well. Uh, we've, as you look outside the window right now, we're sitting in one of our conference rooms. You can see you know, construction vehicles going around, walls going up, glass going in. Yeah, so you, it's, might, it's, you might be able to hear it. <laughs> yeah, you can literally hear it in the background. Um, so yeah, no, things are going really well with that. Um, couldn't be happier with the progress. And then on the digital surgeons front, um, you know, it's been a it's been a really busy year coming out of a pretty busy summer. I know a lot of folks sort of typically take take it easy in the summer, but this summer's been a particularly hectic one for us as we're getting ready for Q4 um, with you know annual seasons rebooting and that sort of thing. So it's um it's been exciting and uh, no complaints on my end. So David really referred to you as the the yin to his yang, or you know you guys bounce off each other in a really positive way as leaders for this company and uh, just tell me a little bit about your relationship with him as a partner and you know how the work that you bring to digital surgeons yeah absolutely so David is a strategist a business developer you know really what I would describe as a serial entrepreneur he always has been since the day that we met um, going back I think early 2006 is when we first met Um my background is in design and technology. So I'm a designer developer by trade. Um, picked up a lot of my strategic thinking over time, whereas you know, David sort of had that in the beginning of our relationship. So very, very grateful and, and thankful for you know, being able to pick up and learn from him and sort of be a student of that world. Um, I would say that the, where the yin and yang comes is um, you know, David is a very naturally high energy, high ideas type of person. Um, he and I, I think where we excel the best is we move at a million miles a minute, but we're able to 
like any great team, sort of quickly pass the ball back and forth in a way that is often seamless to our customers and our, and our teams here. Um, and I would say just that dynamic, um, you know, high passion, high energy has really fostered, um, I would say, a healthy competitive nature between the two of us and a healthy competitive nature uh, between the team here and the organization. And what that allows us to do is really always be driving forward, always have that spirit, that grit, that resilience to keep pushing forward in a market that is always changing. You know, just this morning as I was driving in, I was listening to something um, on my phone and another technology is coming out. You know, one that our entire technology team probably in the next 90 days is going to need to learn. And I think what's been really great about that dynamic that David and I have is that we're never afraid to just go and learn something new. Um, you know, a lot of people often refer to Dave as the sort of handy renaissance man because, you know, one day you'll see him with a drill in his hand <laughs> making something, um, whereas I'm sort of the quiet internet explorer, if you will, where I'll go bury my head in a computer. Um, I'm much more of a digital person versus David's much more, I would say, um, he connects dots in the real world. So I think we, he and I... There's a lot of contrast. And now, naturally, after being business partners for over a decade and, and starting multiple companies together, um, district and digital surgeons being two of those, um, we've been able to really rub off each other you know, in a lot of ways. So I think what's really interesting now is we have this much larger Venn diagram of intersections that in the beginning didn't exist. In the beginning, you know, I was literally the the quiet designer coder, um, and even just from this podcast interview, I, mean, I couldn't imagine myself 10 years ago, like staring at a microphone and you and having this conversation. And now it's perfectly natural. And I attribute a lot of that to the partnership that David and I have had and, and the many hardships that we've overcome as first time entrepreneurs building mm -hmm. companies. Now, if, uh, if listeners were to go on a digital surgeons website, uh, you find a ton of articles, but I would say the m a majority of them that I found in terms of uh, kind of like literature that's coming from the partners is definitely coming from Pete. So you've done a whole bunch of writing, a whole bunch of kind of uh, thought about organizational development, and uh, a lot of these articles are really awesome. Uh, I wanted to bring up one in particular. It's called Discovery is Broken, and you talk about uh, discovery as the first phase focused on understanding the larger goals and objectives of an, in of an initiative. So discovery is a huge aspect of finding the way to, to begin an initiative, but you also go on to say that discovery is broken in most organizations. So could tell me a little bit about why you think this way and, uh, and what does it mean for these companies? That's a great point. And I, I would say that I'm very passionate about how design can affect and change the world in a positive way. Um, obviously, digital is literally in our name. Um, and a big origin story behind that is really, we've been inheriting digital projects for well over a decade. And there's always some place that we're starting um, where we have to essentially take organizations that don't start digitally and, and really make them much more digital companies. You know, Nowadays, you hear terms like digital transformation, you hear ter terms like business model, Reimagination or new business model creation, new venture creation. Um, but really, that's been the advent of digital for a long time. So when I say discovery is broken, I think what happens a lot of times is organizations that are shifting and learning new things, they don't typically have the tools that they need to be able, or the education that they need uh, to be able to do that. And one of the things as a technologist myself, 
I watched happening, you know, being a part of a lot of large technology projects, either on the periphery of that or also really laser focused on the inside and involved in creating that is I started to see a lot of patterns in why technology projects fail. I started to see a lot of problems as to, um, you know, whether it be scope creep or budgetary overruns or just lack of projects getting completed and I started to explore. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm sort of, you know, a student to sort of bury my head in the sand and, and go look into that. And one of the things that I found was a big contributing factor to why projects fail is uncertainty. Um, and I think that uncertainty, both technical uncertainty, which is really something these days that I think many organizations are struggling with. You know, ultimately many of the the C suite executives that I work with um, at larger organizations or fortune organizations, they have very large, robust technology comp- uh, divisions and very large marketing and product and sales divisions. But often these are matrix organizations. So by design, these folks don't have access to each other. So uncertainty happens um, when people come in and a service provider, whether it be a vendor or an agency or even just an, a consultant or an internal partner, will come in and they won't properly do the due diligence upfront. You know, in most cases, no business transaction gets done in in the modern business world without a great deal of due diligence. Yet, in most cases, um, the process for how a project gets estimated, how a vendor or a employee or a department gets chosen to do that work, there's often a very, very um, light process for how that's done. And I think it it takes into consideration... A lot, a lot of things, but the one thing it doesn't take consideration is the people that are going to be associated with the project. And I feel that when you look at organizations, why discovery is broken is the way in which that they're appro- approaching requirements gathering, the way in which they're imagining together. Um, it's very linear, and in my opinion, we're in a much more nonlinear way, way in world in terms of how products get created today. Um, and ultimately, what that turns into is bad decisions. And I think what happens there is you have a couple of factors at play. I think you have, first off, you have what I like to call hippos or the highest highest paid person's opinion. Um, and in some cases, what that comes down to is the person that is in charge of a project, um, whether it be the project sponsor or the executive or whatever it is, oftentimes they're not primed with the knowledge that they need to be able to make a good decision. So it's, it's no fault of them. It's just that when they show up, um, I always say to people, are you riffing or are you requesting? Because a lot of times, you know, executives will come in the room, they have amazing things to say, no one understands their business better than them, but when they're riffing, their team actually will think that that's what the, that they are requesting then. So what ends up happening is the loudest person is often the person that knows the least about the topic, and then they're riffing on the topic, their team is afraid, right? So the person in charge is afraid because they don't want to ask a question that's going to make them look stupid in front of their direct reports, and then the subordinates that person often will just roll out and do the things that that executive says. So I think that what we know about just humans in general is that we want to feel safe, right? Literally, our brains are still wired to not get eaten by a lion or a dinosaur, right? So we want to feel safe. And I think that in many of these large organizations, psychological safety is not something that's present with these teams. So it's sort of broken before the project even gets started. The space isn't even designed to accept the opinions of people who actually represent the groups that are going to be changed by these policies or something like that. Absolutely. And and also I would say as a build on that, Robert, is I think that the way in which people are working, you know, they're not co-creating. It's very linear. It's this team will do one thing. The next team does another thing. And what we're finding now is 
one of the best ways to get a project completed is to have everyone's buy-in. One of the best ways to get everyone's buy-in is to get people at the table from the from day one. You know, often with projects that nowadays you can't really do a project that doesn't involve some aspect of technology. I mean, even this podcast alone, we're connected to the internet, we're connected to microphones that are connected to a compressor box, right? So technology is a part of everything that we do in any type of project, whether it's a technological project or not. So I think that early on, getting that buy-in from all the departments, getting that buy-in from all the different stakeholders that are going to be associated with it, that's something that I think requires a great deal of upfront thinking and different ways of working. So I've talked a lot, as you mentioned, I've written a lot of articles about the RFP process or request for proposal. Um, and in many cases, I think the it all starts with defining the right problem which often I believe is not defined properly. And then the way in which the vendors are vetted and selected, no matter what side, if it's an internal project or an external project, it's making sure that you get the people at the table from day one that are gonna have the buy-in, that are gonna see the project through from beginning to end and have a sense of purpose and intrinsic motivation attached to it. Otherwise, they're not gonna care about the project and they're just going to place blame on um, basically the, the last person that touched it. So. In, the, in most technological projects um, that require a lot of engineering, you don't typically have developers and engineers involved early enough in the process, right? You have project managers who might not be as technical, technically savvy. Um, and then at the end, when the developers get the project, and this happens in many organizations, I, I just got off a call with a customer the other day um, that they're going to be bringing us in to sort of help them uh, un unravel something because basically the engineering department is, you know, three, four months late on a project right now. And the first thing we did was I just called the engineering manager and I said, hey, what's going on? You know, I heard that project running behind. And the first thing was the requirements. And it was just excuse, excuse, excuse. Mm -hmm. And then when I was able to get down to it, I realized was that the people that were working on the project weren't interested in it. And then when I got down to understanding why they weren't interested in it, it's because the way in which they saw the problem and the thing that they were doing, they didn't understand the impact it was gonna have on them and you know when you look at just basic human psychology you need the personal impact you need personal impact mm -hmm. absolutely so that's just hopefully that answers the question yeah absolutely so but it i also want to focus on the uh element of hiring and of onboarding when it comes to technologies and you and or it comes to you know this element of discovery in these projects because uh one thing you say is that there's a fundamental disconnect um in which an organization hires you know non-experts to do a task who are there to fix a problem which is not actually the problem the organization is facing. Um, tell me about this disconnect. How does that develop? I think one of the terms that I use a lot is digital IQ. Um, many organizations now don't have the through line that connects together the technology, the experience, the measurement, analytics that are driving it. Um, and I think what ended up happening with the disconnect is that you have... It's sort of like like the image that I used in the Discovery is Broken um, masthead, which is it's kind of like two cans connected with string, right? Like it, it sort of kind of works like when you're five years old in a treehouse, but in, in the technological real world, it ends up turning into sort of a game of disconnected telephone. So when things are being re relayed from one person to another or one group to another, the message ends up getting muddled in it just based on the way things are working. And I think that as much as Agile has become a more progressive way of working today, um, projects are still largely waterfall. And the way that they manage interdependencies typically 
you don't have the right people at this at the table at the right time. And I think that one of the easy ways to fix that, just as a sort of offering up a solution, is co-creation. You know, both getting the users of the product or the technology involved in the in the process of it. So you're sort of designing it together. Um, I'm a big fan of rapid prototyping, and then and also a we're really big schools of you know, we're practitioners here of design thinking, and that's something that we do a lot of. And I think what that enables people to do is arms them with basic tools and techniques so that when you do have that uncertainty that can potentially plague a project, or when you do have that lack of buy-in, using these types of ways of working, getting people together either virtually or physically, physically is of course always best if possible, but where logistics or international um, organizations can't do that, even virtual can bring people together. And I think you just have to get everybody on the same page and often where the disconnect happens is just a lack of knowledge and a lack of requirements being gathered. You either have one, what I call the consulting problem, which is where the, the sort of best practices book gets dropped on on the table. You know, people will go out, they'll engage the, the best consultants, then they'll get the book on the table, and then it won't. By the time it's ready to get executed, it's already obsolete. By the time the ink dries on, on the document, so there's sort of that's in a, a case of sort of over documenting, um, not enough action, and then there's the case of under documenting, um, which then leads to technical debt. Um, right. Hopefully, that that's a good and, frame to look through. And it seems like. And something that you mentioned as well, that an organization is always really focused on where it should be and where it wants to be rather than what these actual status is of all its different departments of where it actually is. Um, And something you mentioned is that uh, an organization hires and plans for where it wants to be rather than what it's able to do right now. So how can this problem be avoided? You know, you were talking about communication, but... uh, are there other ways that we can, you know, as leaders, you know, how, how we can truly assess where we're at in, a, in a, this moment of time when we're trying to plan for the future? Absolutely. Well, I think the first thing that I always recommend and that we've had a lot of success with is parallel project pathways. And what I mean by that specifically is identify, identifying the future use case of where you believe you're going to be going as an organization. You know, what is a tried and true Maybe it's a proven case by a competitor or non-competitor, but understanding where you need to go in the future and sort of planting that flag. Um, but while in parallel, so that that's sort of the case for disruptive innovation, right? That's the case for transformative innovation, where we know that in 20 years, the we're going to go from a... I always use the self-driving car example, right? It's like we know in 20 years that people are going to stop buying cars, so we have to reimagine the automobile, right? So all the car companies now are thinking about different ways to reimagine the automobile, right? And all the different ways to make it more about an experience and think about all the different things. So they know they have to do that, right? But they can't put put all their eggs in that basket because, A, it may or may not happen, right? So it's planning that flag in the future of where you need to go. Um, a good example of that is a lot of clients now are still still now, only just now, moving to the cloud and moving to a full sort of off-premise um, technology environment, as an example, right? So that's great, but those projects can take three, five years in some cases, depending on the size uh, and the structure of the organization. So when I say parallel path, what I mean specifically is I'm a big proponent in incremental innovation. So one of the tools and exercises that we do um, with our customers is we do this sort of building the bridge exercise where basically we sort of define the future state, 
we define the present state, and that's where a lot of collaboration has to happen. We have to surface a lot of things. You could never do that in the RFP process because no one that's responding to that RFP in the right mind is going to do that level of diligence or have the level of access to the stakeholders that they need to be able to get those true answers, right? So oftentimes they're either going to underbid it to win the job or they're going to overbid it to win the job. Um, and that's where uncertainty comes back in. So how you do that innovation is we, with that exercise we call sort of crossing the chasm, it's basically start where you stand, figure out where you're going in the future, and then what are the building blocks to get from point A to point B? Um, because often organizations try to go from, from A to Z and they skip all the steps in the way. And what that basically then creates is what I call latency in the marketplace. And by latency in the marketplace, uh, what I mean is the time in which it takes you to ship and to actually drive change just takes far too long. And then what ends up happening because of the nature of organizations today, turnover, people switching jobs, et cetera, is that the, the people that were originally vested in that big eight-year innovation project, you're lucky if only a few of them remain there from the beginning to the end of the project. So then that get, gets back into that situation of uncertainty, that gets into that situation of too much or too little documentation. But a great way to really break that down is, again, think about a to-do list, Robert, right? The last time you had a to-do list that had 50 items on it, you probably felt pretty paralyzed by it. Mm -hmm. But if you had a to-do list that had, if you had 10 to-do lists that had three things each, and you could start crossing those things off the list or start seeing those results, that's where that parallel innovation really comes into place. Um, so again, I want to be very, very clear. I'm not suggesting that people don't focus on the bigger picture, because I think that's the most important thing. But while a team is laser focused and dedicated to that initiative, I think that either another team with either some crossover needs to be focused on that incremental innovation. Mm -hmm. um, and one of my favorite examples of that is a lot of organizations now, um, we're actually working with some to help them develop this, but a lot of organizations now are creating centers of excellence or innovation studios, where basically what they're doing is creating shared services organizations inside their companies where they can educate people and give them the resources that they need, be it design, be it technology, be it product management, to be able to define those requirements and have those quick wins to show the progress and the progression. And that's what we've had a lot of success with um, coming off the heels of of large enterprise organizations, and then also looking at what startups are doing. So I wrote, you spoke a lot about the articles I've written. Again, I'm super passionate about getting my thoughts out there and sharing it with people. You know, I, I always, the thing that I always find is if I Google something and I can't find the answer, I'm like, oh, I need, I need to really dig into this, research it, and then I want to write an article so somebody else doesn't have to um, go through that, that painful process of staying up all night reading. So that's been something that I've been really thinking about is how do big, you know, big companies want to act like startups and startups want to act like big companies. And the reason why is that um, it's sort of, I don't think it's a grass is greener thing. I think it's big companies want more speed and small companies want more stability and want more structure. Um, and I think that being able to, again, bridging that gap, taking schools of thoughts from both of those things, that's where you can really start to hack your growth is something that we do a lot here at Digital Surgeons is, is help people with what's the next thing in front of them, not necessarily the thing that's 10 years down the road. I think it's easy to look at all the problems at least for me, it's easy to look at all the problems that we've been discussing and say, looks like I think big companies have these problems. You know, the, they, they're not as agile. They're not as, uh, you know, up to oftentimes they're not as up to date with the new technologies. And, and uh, you know, one element that we had talked a lot about on this podcast is, is being an abundant leader and having the ability to. Um, and the want to uh, put a lot of resources back into your employees and, you know, things like innovation centers. That's an amazing resource that employees could have. 
But if you think that resources are really scarce, it's not something that a leader is going to want to do. Um, so, you know, how is it that we can, you know, you're comparing the, the, uh, the startups to the big companies and saying, yes, startups do want to have that stability. But um, it seems like, and it, let me know if this is incorrect, it seems like when you get that big, do you lose a lot of that uh, agility? Do you lose a lot of that uh, ability to, you know, do things like uh, incremental innovations and parallel project pathways and things like that? I think the answer to that question is a resounding yes. I think that, you know, even myself and I have colleagues that have companies that are 20, 30, 100, 200, 300 people, even ourselves, when we cracked the 40 person mark here at Digital Surgeons, you know, I watched our speed slow down. Now, some people would say it's still breakneck speeds. <laughs> I think our, our teams would, would, would maybe say the same, but the, the, there's definitely a reduction in speed. And really what that comes down to, Robert, I think is risk, right? I think it's risk and failure. You know, leaders can only make so many bets. And I think that no matter how abundant their resources are internally, no matter how rich their budgets are and supportive their marketers and, you know, financial officers are, um, I think what it, what it really comes down to here is fear of failure. And I think that one of the, the ways that you can achieve success in parallel pathways is to diversify the way in which that you are changing as an organization. Again, not putting all bets on one thing, but really breaking it down into smaller things. I always like to say fail small frequently, right? I've heard the term fail forward. Um, I'm not as a big fan because who wants to fail, right? Robert, do you want to fail? Nope. <laughs> exactly, right? But I think failing small frequently, celebrating small wins is a really important thing that I think you know, even I have, I think at times forgotten about it's, you know, you, you finish something, you want to go on to the next thing, on to the next thing. You know, we, as leaders, we crave progression, right? But I think sometimes the notion of just celebrating those small wins is a really important thing. Um, when I say things like parallel pathways, I think organizations can spend a lot less time, a lot less money making material changes to their current organization by bending a lot of the traditional rules. Um, I think that understanding a specific problem that you're trying to change or address for a subset of customers. So for example, if you're a large CPG company, you know, we work with a lot of those, um, they can't change the market on the right side of that innovation curve, which is to the laggards, the people that are buying their stuff every day in grocery stores, et cetera. Like they can't just change that overnight. So the way that they have to innovate um, in organizations like that, use that as a parallel is they have to identify what is a small subset of people that they can test and learn from? You know, what is a, a test project? Because the more you can eliminate risk, the more you can make the failures smaller, you know, whether they cost less to your reputation or to your expenses or to your, your P&L, um, that's a way that I think you can keep innovating. But again, it comes back, back down to safety, right? People need to feel that they're allowed to make mistakes. They need to feel like they're allowed to fail. You know, there's not a single innovation, including the invention of this microphone I'm talking into that got created on the first shot. You know, someone didn't just sit down and invent it. You know, all of the greatest inventions, all the greatest innovations of our time failed hundreds, if not thousands of times to get to that level of innovation. But yet we're in a marketplace today where we're expected to work more, hustle more, deliver more with less resources, mm -hmm. right? And I think that that is a, that's creating a fundamental shift in 
leader's ability to innovate. And when I look at and I study the behaviors of some of these great leaders that are known for innovation on a small scale or a large scale of companies of all shapes and sizes, the one pattern that I, I see consistently is inclusion, is a sense of purpose, is giving people a sense of autonomy so that they can really master something, and then giving them the space, both physical, emotional, and time to actually fail. Um, and I think that when you can, when you walk into an organization, and I've had the distinct pleasure of being able to do that, when you see what innovation looks like, it feels much more like people getting together at a coffee shop. It feels more like that successful college project team that you saw, and less like large boardroom tables and um, you know stakeholder meetings and PowerPoint report out decks. Um, what I always say is, you want to judge a good facilitator. Look across the room and see the number of people that are smiling. You know, measure the number of smiles per hour. Um, and it sounds a little cheesy, but really what it comes down to is if you can't bring a level of play into this, you can't bring play into it if fear and failure are, are the things that are the resounding noises or things that people see in the room. So I think, again, it's about incorporating play. It's about making it easier, smaller failures. And that's how you can incorporate those parallel paths. I think that's a really great place for us to stop for today, man. Sounds great. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. Absolutely. And, uh, love to have you. Awesome, Robert. Always uh, always a pleasure. I would love to come back if you'll have me. Down to go. Can I go look at the district? Absolutely. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. That was my interview with Pete Senna of Digital Surgeons. To read the article we referenced in this interview, go to digitalsurgeons.com. My interview with Pete brought to light a few concepts that I find essential for a company to survive in a rapidly changing world. Pete noted that most companies don't have the tools and education they need to adapt to change, let alone know that they need those tools and education. Leaders often underestimate the impact their decisions will have on their teams, and the linear plan they lay out will quickly dissolve once the reality of the project sets in. Pete and I agree that leaders must include the input and reactions of their teams from the beginning before making big changes. This allows them to truly define the problem that needs to be solved instead of rushing to a solution that may solve nothing. It's easy to decide where you want to be in life, what you want to be doing in five years, what kind of change you're bringing to the world. The difficult part is accurately determining where you are in the present moment and acting upon that reality. To do this, you must look for voices other than your own to help guide you in the future you're looking for. With that, and until next time, this is Robert Roach signing off.